And we are, we are welcome to Golden Bear Talks. Thank you so much for coming. We're going to ask our friends, because they're doing everything already, let's ask our friends in the kitchen to drop that house sound when they have time and free hands. Thanks, guys. And we will go ahead and start with our deepest gratitude for our friends here at the Windy Saddle who take such a care of us. Yeah. Also for goldentoday.com, Barb Warden is in the house. Yep. If you want to know anything going on in Golden, any gathering, any political what for, then goldentoday.com is the place to go and get yourself some education. And the deepest background on the history of our town as well. We have an amazing speaker for you tonight. We are so excited. And we have some beer. We even have some extra beer. So that's a challenge. I meant it as such. Our uh, foreign envoy, Jim Clausen, is going to come up, and he's going to talk about our guest tap brewery and um, give us a little more info. Here we go. Here's Jim. Good evening, all. It's a good crowd tonight. Excellent. So our brewery tonight is Hogshead, uh, or more properly Hogshead 54, down at uh, uh, West 29th Avenue in the Highlands. Uh, Cross Street is Tennyson, so it's not very far from Sloan's Lake. Um, The brewery was founded in... Uh, on October 15th, 2010. So they've been around a, a few years down there. Um, the owner and brewer is uh, Stephen Kirby, and it's managed by David uh, Lighty. Um, their, their mission is uh, to brew and hand pull the best cast condition English-style real ale in the world. So it's uh, highly, highly ambitious. Um, so as... as I mentioned they, they specialize in their cast condition ales, and these are the ones, if you've ever been to an English pub and you've seen them pull the handle and they call it, you know, draw me a beer. Um, that's the kind of, of beer that they specialize in, but uh, unfortunately that beer doesn't travel very well because it's not uh, well carbonated and doesn't um, last very long in the uh, crowlers. So they also have kegged beer, and that's what we're drinking tonight is the kegged versions of their beer. Um, we got three beers tonight. <clears throat> I went tasting on, uh, on Saturday and um, couldn't narrow it down to two, so I had to pick three. Um, so the first up is the Gilpin Black Gold, which is a, a London Porter, and it's a 5% alcohol and uh, just 33 uh, IBUs, bittering units. So uh, it says here, dark and beautiful, this London porter gathers together all of the beer's darker glories. So it's got uh, dark cocoa powder, coffee, pepper, spicy wood, mushrooms, and dark fruit flavors, um, balanced by a light residual sweetness uh, of the crystal malts. So um, I found it to be uh, quite drinkable um, and, and pretty tasty. So um, and, and being, you know, towards the, well, actually... Given the impending uh, weather disaster that's forecasted for tomorrow, uh, you know, the porters are, are appropriate. Um, but uh, we're getting out of the dark beer season, so I figured it was the last gasp to at least get some, uh, some dark beer in your system. Uh, the next one is the Lake Lightning. 
which is a English pale ale. And uh, it's a 5% alcohol with uh, only 51 bittering units. I thought this was a very nice um, uh, kind of lighter beer. Um, and, and here they say it's not your typical American hop shocker. So it, it doesn't, you know, hit you with all the hops on it. So um, the light gro- uh, golden brew smells of biscuity dry malts and herbal spicy hops. So um, can you? Excellent. How about the biscuity? Not, not as much biscuity. The gravy, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you may have spilled some soup in there. I don't know. I'm not sure. But... <laughs> so the last one we have is the, the Hog Wild, which is the IPA. Um, this one is 6% alcohol, and I actually didn't get the, uh, the IBUs on this one. It's a little hoppier, but I didn't find it was overly... You know, again, it wasn't a hop shocker. It was pretty nice and drinkable as well, but with a little bit more uh, spicy. It's an English-style IPA. It's got three different uh, West Coast hops. Um, I didn't get an extensive uh, um, description on that one, so uh, we'll just leave it uh, for you guys to taste and have your own uh, opinion on it. So those are the three beers we have tonight. I hope you enjoy them. And I'm going to hand it off to Don here to introduce our speaker for tonight. Thanks very much, Jim. Well, welcome, everybody, and it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, author and educator, Dr. Lisa Gardner. Uh, Dr. Gardner works at the UCAR Center for Science Education, which is affiliated with NCAR up in Boulder, the National Center for Atmospheric Research that you're, you're all familiar with. Um, and... Lisa is, uh, has degrees in, in uh, a doctorate in geology and a, a BA in geology and marine science, but she also has a master in fine arts, interestingly enough, in creative nonfiction. So she has, she has science and then she has writing, and that serves her well because her work is uh, interdisciplinary in nature where she utilizes art and story to communicate science ideas. And she works on educational experiences having to do with weather and climate for blogs and websites and museum exhibits and, and classrooms. Uh, and tonight, Dr. Gardner will talk about her book. Oops. Here's one. <laughs> like this one, Tales from an Uncertain World. What other assorted disasters can teach us about climate change? And... This talk is a, is a nice follow-on, in my opinion. If you were here for last month's talk, Dr. Claire Zilber talked to us about uh, the body's physiologic response to stress and grief. And Lisa tonight will talk about other types of stressors that affect us and our responses. And specifically, she's been doing investigations into people's mental and emotional response to major disasters like earthquake floods and fires. She'll talk a little bit about our perceptions of risk and how we handle uncertainty. And then to top it all off, the cherry on the top, she'll wrap climate change into all of this. So buckle your seatbelts. So husband Adam, 
who's standing here, will be in the back of the room with many copies of uh, said book. They're $20 a piece, and during the break you'll have an opportunity to look it over, perhaps buy one, perhaps get it signed by the author, by the author's husband. (laughs) Who knows? Anyway, we're pleased to have Dr. Lisa Gardner with us. Thank you so much. Hey, I'll try not to speak to your backs here. (laughs) So I I just, like, I really appreciate being invited here for this combination of beer, disaster, and climate change. I, I really, I appreciate people who can combine, like, you know, being tipsy with learning about calamity. I I think that you guys are my crowd because, you know, (laughs) clearly you are not taking it too seriously, which is is one of the things that that I think, you know, serves us best. Look, I'm standing in front of my slides. You know, I do. But that's very rude of you. Okay. (laughs) Excuse us. Okay, so um, as you heard, uh, I... uh, I, I wrote this book, and in part, I wrote this book because uh, I work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and for a part of uh, my time there, I've been there almost 16 years now, um, but my job's changed over time, and I work in the education department, and uh, for the first sort of few years, I was more of a face-to-face educator, helping uh, the public and teachers, uh, not so much students, but the public and teachers learn about climate science. And um, I, I'm a little more behind the scenes now, working on museum exhibits and websites and uh, curriculum and things like that. But those first face-to-face days, really, uh, they really made me realize that I could explain the science of climate change really articulately. I could tell you great stories about the Earth and what's happening, and they're just, I mean, the Earth is a magical place. It does fantastic things, and when we poke the system by adding greenhouse gases, really incredible things happen. But when I look at people's faces, obviously that wasn't exactly how they were interpreting the situation. And um, are there any educators in the room? Anyone who teaches? So um, perhaps you've heard of sort of, you know, that aha moment that you're supposed to strive for, that, you know, when, when someone fully understands something, and it's usually a good thing that people are like, oh, that's how it works. Oh, algebra, I get it now, whatever it is. But if it's climate change, it's more like, ooh. <laughs> that, ooh, that, you know, that's not great. And, um, and so this leads to a lot of worry. Um, so, uh, and, you know, people worry for good reason. Um, and uh, it's a totally unsustainable situation. It's, uh, it's the most unnatural of disasters that we seem to be creating. And it's so slow moving that it's really hard to wrap our heads around. Um, but <laughs> worry and fear and anger, these are all very natural responses. But uh, when you find yourself in a global catastrophe, but they're not terribly helpful. So, um, you know, what can we do? What can we do to, to do better? So interestingly, a little aside, there's a group of social scientists at Yale that uh, sends out a survey every year to the American public. And they... Uh, 
they're looking for people's perceptions of climate change, how people feel about it. And uh, so they've been tracking hope and worry. And as you can see, in the last few years, the orange line is worried. Uh, and the, the purple line is hope. Um, so we are getting more worried and less hopeful about what's happening. And I've heard some of my colleagues say, well, this is good. It's good if people worry about what's happening because it's worrying. But the thing is that people typically only take action to solve a problem if they have some hope that they're going to solve a problem. And um, so I set out to research and write this book in part because um, I wanted to profile examples of how we've dealt with other sorts of calamities because we have some experience in this area. We, you know, we have gotten through a lot because we're all sitting here drinking beer. So um, somehow that happened. Uh, so, uh, so we have some experience. We must have some strengths in terms of dealing with change. But we also clearly have some blind spots uh, that lead us to make big rationalizations about climate, um, about what we should do or not do, or whether it's a problem or not. And so uh, how can we play to our strengths and avoid our blind spots, basically? So one of uh, the things that I learned um, was that our reactions to environmental change, whether climate change or an earthquake or all sorts of other things, our reactions often depend on how we deal with uncertain information. Because we don't know exactly what's going on at any given point, even today, right now, here. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But uh, anyway, <laughs> thank you for having faith in me. Um, so <laughs> we, uh, we don't all deal with uncertain information the same way. Some people take uncertain information and say, you know, I'm not going to make any decisions about what to do until I have more information. Anyone ever heard that? Some people say, oh my gosh, so many different calamities could happen. Based on this uncertain information, I'm going to take every possible outcome and make a contingency plan. Have you guys ever heard anything like that? I'm prone to anxiety, so I, I, tend, to <laughs> I tend to be guilty of that one. Um, so we don't all deal with it in the same way, but also we don't all define the word uncertainty in the same way. And scientists and non-scientists define it differently. So this, this is a bit of a problem because scientists really rely on defining uncertainty in order to communicate what we know about the planet. But um, I did, as a scientist, sometimes I have to do Google image searches to define words. So I defined the word uncertainty through a Google image search, and I came up <laughs> with images like this. Um, the images I found, they, uh, they were all kind of unpleasant. Um, this is just a short list of my favorites, but sort of uncomfortable. This is actually one of my favorites here, I think. You know, who hasn't felt like this, really? Um, but this is the kind of uncertainty that, um, that we think of in our general lives, like when we're not sure, when we're feeling kind of wishy-washy, when we're not sure where to go. 
But in science, uncertainty is not kind of this unsure feeling. It's a way of articulating how much we do know. And so it's done all the time so that scientists can tell each other, this is how much I know, but these are the areas I don't understand. So, uh, you know, this is area where you guys can help fill in the blanks. And so this is how the scientific community then improves our, our understanding. And the quote there is from the uh, IPCC 2014 assessment report. So this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that big group project around the world that defines what we know about climate change. So they, I, I like to refer to it with kids as a, uh, it's like a book report. They are reading all the scientific literature and then trying to sum it up uh, and say what we know. But even they uh, defined um, this statement here. It's sort of hard to read. I will read it for you. Um, it is extremely likely that human influence is the dominant cause of all the, of the observed warming since the mid-20th century. So I think my editor in me would start that sentence with human influence is. But, um, but they have to <laughs> say it's extremely likely, even if they, thank you scientists, define extremely likely as over... 95% certainty, I believe. So, I mean, if you went to Las Vegas and you heard that something was extremely likely, I mean, would you, if it was 95% certain that you were going to win at some sort of, yeah, I'd take that bet. But, uh, but scientists like to communicate that sort of uncertainty. So, I'm going to read you an example from the book, and I'm realizing I'm going to need this thing. Because holding a book and holding a microphone? No, that's okay. So in the background here, you'll be seeing some pictures. Oh, look, I'm short. Thank you. Chances are I'm not going to grow in the next minute or two. Okay, so... Um, in the background here are some images that kind of inspired me as I was writing this chapter. Um, this is a section about the San Francisco earthquake and fires from 1906. The shaking started in San Francisco at about 5.12 in the morning of April 18, 1906. Rocks more than six miles below the Earth's surface released their pent-up energy in waves that spread through the ground at speeds over 10,000 miles per hour. The earthquake is estimated to have had the explosive force of 500 megatons of TNT, a magnitude of 7.8 on the Richter scale. A block from Golden Gate Park, Emma Burke, her husband, and their son clutched the frame of a door within their apartment while listening to the deafening noise of destruction as the ground shook. Crashing dishes, rattling roofs, and a piano hurling across the parlor. The collective cacophony made such a roar that no one noise could be distinguished. Burke wrote in an article a few months after the disaster. She continued, We never knew when the chimney came tearing through. 
We never knew when a great marine picture weighing 125 pounds crashed down, not eight feet away from us. We were frequently shaken loose from our hold on the door and only kept our feet by mutual help and the utmost efforts. The floor moved like short, choppy waves of the sea, crisscrossed by a tide as mighty as themselves. Stand in front of your clock and count off 48 seconds, and imagine the scene to have continued for that length of time, and you can get some idea of what one could suffer during that period. In less than a minute, most of the shaking had ended. This is rapid change. It can't be ignored like the slow erosion along a coast. Many of the buildings covering San Francisco's hills had crumbled into bricks and dust that morning. Chasms had opened up in the middle of some streets. Most of the people who were not in bed were selling and buying produce in the market district when the earthquake hit. These early birds would wind up trapped under mounds of bricks, fruits, and vegetables. During an earthquake, the ground doesn't move in exactly the same direction and at exactly the same speed. This causes cracks to form in brittle ground. In San Francisco, the cracks were one to five feet wide and up to 25 feet deep. DeWitt Baldwin was eight years old at the time the earth shook. Freed from his early morning piano practice, his family's piano was in no condition to be played, he and other boys roamed the city once the shaking stopped and before the fires started, eager to see the damage. Sometimes I dared to peer down a fissure, and I'd see fallen things inside, he reflected. At times, I couldn't see anything because the crack was so frightfully deep and dark. It was just before the sun climbed above the horizon when the earth shook. Most people were in their pajamas. The general reaction was to run into the street and away from unsteady buildings. Many of these buildings would catch fire later in the day. Thus, many people would be left with only the pajamas on their backs and they remained dressed that way days longer than they intended. In his memoir of the experience, photographer Arnold Genthe described the post-earthquake fashions that he witnessed in the streets outside his studio. The streets presented a weird appearance. Mother and children in their nightgowns, men in pajamas and dinner coat. Bless you. Women scantily dressed with evening wraps hastily thrown over them. Many ludicrous sights met the eye. An old lady carrying a birdcage full of uh, four kittens, while the original occupant, the parrot, perched on her hand. A man tenderly holding a pot of calla lilies, muttering to himself. A scrubwoman in one hand, a new broom, and in the other, a large black hat with ostrich plumes. A man in an old-fashioned nightshirt and swallowtails, being startled when a friendly policeman spoke to him, saying, mister, I guess you better put on some pants. There may not be anything more vulnerable than urban Victorians on unsteady ground, surrounded by unsteady buildings without pants. Most of Gentha's description emphasizes the mixture of vulnerability with trophies of society, a hat with ostrich feathers, a dinner coat, calla lilies, and the man in the nightshirt wearing a tailcoat, or swallowtails, as they were known. 
These material objects give us a sense of our culture, a sense of ourselves, and a connection to our normal reality. Did they still matter as the earth shook? Across the city, Emma Burke hurried to dress. After the shaking subsided, and she realized the clothes that she had valued the day before were no longer of such value. She chose a coarse wool skirt and a long coat lined with white silk. She reflected, I had no thought for the dress I had cherished the day before. I was merely considering what was the warmest and most substantial. For Burke, fashion was less of a consideration in the face of natural disaster than it was for Gentha, who roamed the streets in his khaki riding outfit, which he had deemed to be his most suitable earthquake attire as he was dressing and preparing to flee his building. It wasn't the earthquake that caused the most destruction in San Francisco. It was the fires that engulfed the city after the ground calmed. Fires that proved very difficult to stop. It's easier to stop a fire when you have water to douse the flames. But the earthquake had caused the city's water supply to fail. An irony for a peninsula almost completely surrounded by water. Some disasters, like an earthquake, happen all at once. They come out of the blue, making whatever to-do list you'd made that morning entirely moot. Some are incremental, like the gradual warming of the atmosphere from additional greenhouse gases. They're so slow that it can be difficult to see the effects until the situation is dire. Other disasters are in between, rapid compared to recent climate change, but gradual compared to an earthquake. A fire that eventually engulfs a city is in between. A single spark may start a fire so small, it could be easily quelled with the sole of a shoe. The risk increases as the fire spreads. Given exactly the same information about a situation, some people will assess the risk as high, and others will assess the risk as low. Some might be certain the flames can be controlled, while others are certain the flames will grow unchecked. Because we evaluate risk more by intuitive feelings than by logic and reason, we all perceive risk differently. And uncertainty makes our perception of risk even even more varied. The fire could be stopped, but there's also a chance it could grow. uh, Some of the uncertainty is due to nature's chaos, Some of it is due to the limits of our understanding of the nature of fire. We all live with uncertainty, even if we don't live on a fault. So um, that story and the uh, many of the stories in the book kind of rely on history, and I think I really appreciated pulling from history some of these stories because they're not so politically charged. There in the past, we have the benefit of hindsight, and viewing them as a scientist, they're like completed experiments. We know what happened. There are so many accounts of what happened from different people. There's data about what happened. So there's this whole wealth of information about how humans dealt. And I think that, I mean, one of the difficult things about adding a story like a hurricane or something like that into this book was that we were also raw from recent hurricanes. It was hard to have that benefit of hindsight. So, 
I found myself as a disaster tourist, unfortunately, as I was writing this book. And, and you know, it, it started out pretty innocently. I took my nephew to the beach on Cape Cod, and there just happened to be a house falling into the ocean. Um, so, I mean, there were things that I wasn't expecting, uh, and uh, the sort of disaster tourism, it was completely innocent on my part. I just started seeing environmental change everywhere and how we were or weren't dealing with it. I took a wonderful vacation to the Caribbean, and I met an invasive species that was causing turmoil. Um, And then the Nebraska chapter was, I guess, the only one that I I told my husband, I was like, we have to go to Nebraska, because there was a super volcano, and it erupted. And I I think, I mean, (laughs) Nebraska is not known for its disaster tourism, but it's really a wonderful place to visit. So uh, I I think uh, most of the sort of examples from the book were kind of um, accidental, and uh, except for Nebraska, but then um, I had a, a what I called a disaster staycation. Um, I live in Boulder, and in 2013, while I was writing all these chapters and thought I had my book plan kind of organized and knew what I was doing, I just found myself in the middle of giant flash floods, and um, so the the massive rainstorm that happened in Boulder and the flooding. And it made me go back at what I, and look at what I was doing. And as I did that, I was realizing that what I really wanted to focus on, there were a lot of books about how we deal as a society with disasters or how we deal with climate change nationally or globally or how we should. Um, but what I really wanted to look at was how we as individuals cope because even though these are global problems, or large-scale problems. We're all there as individuals, and we all need to make decisions um, that'll keep us resilient and safe and also help for future generations. So so that became the focus. But along the lines of uh, other factors, that um, can influence whether we take action, what we do. I wound up, while I was looking at these stories, I found that a theme running through them was how we see nature. And whether we see nature as a very separate thing from the, uh, well, this graphic puts it as the man-made world. I guess I'd include people of all genders in that, but (laughs) this graphic comes from a, a... probably overly simplistic kids' website, and it helpfully um, divides the world into four parts. Uh, So there is the man-made world, the natural world, um, living things, and non-living things. Um, And I I don't necessarily see the world this way, but some people do, and apparently this is what we're teaching kids. Um, But uh, as I was going through these stories, there were obviously people who were seeing the connections between nature and where they were living, seeing kind of a, a quilt of humans and nature. And then there were people who were seeing sort of nature as working against, against human interests. And there were people who were seeing humans as monopolizing nature. So I think uh, for all of us, how we see nature, and it's not all the same. I mean, we all have different ideas about this. But Naturally, this sort of deep topic led me to the Jetsons. 
Um, and uh, I, I really wanted to look at how, how we see living with nature. And I found that there's a great way to do that, which is through our visions of the future. How we see the future, not in scientific ways, but in cultural ways, really, um, it, it speaks to what we value about human connections to nature, or lack thereof. So to end on a funny note, I will tell you about my very involved research watching the Jetsons. <laughs> Space age visions of the future were often whimsical, at least the ones made for broad popular consumption. They depicted ways that technology might lead us to utopia. It wasn't necessarily a utopia that I hoped to live with it, yet I envy those who had those visions. They felt certain about the direction we're headed. They could see the upside of our separation with nature. I cannot. Case in point, the Jetsons. First aired in 1962, this primetime cartoon sitcom depicted a family of four living in 2062. As of right now, we are 43 years away from the Jetsons' future. <laughs> George Jetson, Jane, his wife, daughter Judy, his boy Elroy, live high up in the Skypad apartments. Machines cook meatloaf and redecorate rooms at the push of a button. Moving walkways transport the family members through the apartment. The technologies that the Jetson family relies on are a major part of each episode. There are many complaints from the cartoon characters about the physical strain caused by button pushing. <laughs> I suppose a hefty button from the early 1960s was more difficult to push than a modern button. Dialing an entire phone number was a strain on the dialing finger and could take all afternoon. Today, our need to push buttons and dial numbers has been greatly reduced. As a consequence, I no longer know anyone's phone number. Excuse me. All buildings in this cartoon world were styled like the Seattle Space Needle. But only their tops are depicted, never the ground. I'm not sure this planet includes, in this future world includes a planet surface, which begs the question, what is going on down there? Are there cities like Seattle at the base of these buildings? Is there a giant dump? Or have the Jetsons futurists allowed it to go wild, with humans living above and beyond the chaos and uncertainty of nature? Somehow, son Elroy finds Astra the dog and brings him home. To me, dogs seem more connected to nature than humans. My dog sniffs and rolls around in nature on a regular basis. Yet Astra goes for walks on a treadmill that protrudes from the side of the sky pad apartments high above the ground. Where does he poop? <laughs> Somehow the Jetsons' future includes no dog poop. At some point, my exploration of the old future evolved from casual loafing around and watching cartoons into dedicated research. Uh, this often happens. I have the ability to take anything light and fun and analyze it. The aim of my research is not to examine past visions of the future and discount them as 
inaccurate. It is instead to look at these visions as one way we saw our relationship with nature. The way I see it, climate change, other environmental calamities and natural disasters are forcing us to redefine our relationship with nature. Thus, it's helpful to consider where we've been as we figure out where we're going. I hypothesize that visions of the future would either portray humans as vulnerable to nature, wiped out by storms, disease, malnutrition, or would portray nature as vulnerable to us, extinction of species, polluted water and air, a dystopia in either case. According to my couch potato research watching old Jetsons episode, neither hypothesis is correct. In the Jetsons' future, nature is nowhere to be found. I figure you must be an outdoor man, says Mr. Spacely, George's boss, when assigning him the role of scout leader in charge of a camping trip. This episode, titled The Good Little Scouts, in which George and Elroy go camping, seems, pro seems promising. Surely the Jetsons must encounter nature if they're heading into the wild. But where did they go? The moon. Traveling 238,000 miles from Grand Central, Central Station, George and the kids put on oxygen helmets and step out into Moonhattan, the developed urban center on the moon. They dismiss a yellow moon taxi and hike miles away to a campground. In an adorable combination of past and future, a scout named Arthur goes to the dark side of the moon to change the film in his camera. <laughs> but the moon wilderness becomes a scary place when George and a camper get lost. The moon was and still is quite wild, yet it lacks characteristics of Earth's nature, such as plants, animals, water, atmosphere. Or perhaps my definition of nature is too narrow. You need a rest, Mrs. Jetson. Get away from all those buttons, advises Jane's doctor in another episode after she nearly has a nervous breakdown. The doctor wears a headband with a reflector on it. Someplace close to nature, he continues. One of those dude planets, perhaps. She and a fellow housewife, who also needs a break, arrive on a dude planet that does not appear to include anything co close to nature. The rodeo bulls are mechanical. The horses they ride are mechanical. There is not a living creature aside from the dudes. To sum up, and thank you for your patience, that went a little longer, um, but how we handle other types of change can help us understand our strengths and weaknesses when it comes to dealing with climate change. Second, how we deal with climate change depends on what we value, how we assess risk, and how we cope with uncertainty. Three, because we don't all deal with those things in the same way, we will never be in total agreement about what to do. But that shouldn't stop us from solving the problem. So thank you all.
We will take a quick break and come back for Q&A. If you do have to depart, which we hope you don't, because we could use some help with this extra beer, uh, next month we have a speaker from Denver Water. So there you go. We'll come back in a few minutes for Q&A. Thank you, Steve. And Lise, there we go. We got a hand raised. I'm going to start with a quick uh, informational announcement. It is last call for alcohol. And our beer tonight was delivered in Crowlers. So if you would like a Crowler for 10 bucks, we have the Pale Ale and a little IPA left if you want to go home with some of this delicious beverage. So there's just some options that we have this evening. We're going to have Lisa answer questions. If you don't mind repeating the question when it's asked so we capture the audio, that'd be awesome. I've already forgotten that. (laughs) And if you, yeah, just choose whomever. Okay. All right. Oh, I can, well, maybe, maybe we should turn it off so that I can be back here and not facing away from you guys. (laughs) Oh, that's even better. Okay. Yeah, maybe we should, we could just do that. Okay. All right. Did you have a question or just a question about the projector? (laughs) Question. Your first graph, your first graph was uh, fascinating. I noticed that um, on, oh, I don't know, the last year or two, it was starting to go down. But I have a feeling that I am more certain now than I ever have been. Thoughts? So, are, okay, I think we got that question, right? So, are you more certain about what? Actually, I'm more uncertain about just anything right now. <laughs> we are facing an existential crisis. I think we should all finish the beer. Um, so, the, that graph was uh, looking at people's hope versus worry. And uh, so we're seeing an increase in people worrying about our ability to deal with climate change and a decrease in people's hopefulness that we'll be able to deal with it. And um, I do notice in that graph that the time in which we started to see that decline in hope and the increase in worry correlates with a certain election. So I, you know... (laughs) I, I am not the social scientist who put that together, but I'd like to point out that you know there are ways that we can deal with this um, crisis and problem, and it is it is a calamity, climate change. But uh, but yeah, there are a lot of ways too that we can make ourselves less hopeful and more worried about the future. Um, so, and obviously the uh, the social scientists they sample from a statistically significant like sample of American public and perhaps they didn't call you sir but <laughs> but I, yeah we I mean we all have different ideas about climate science and climate change and how we feel about it and that's one of the things that I'd like to emphasize is that if your neighbor has different ideas than you do we all think differently. We, we all come at things differently. Um, when that fire in San Francisco was very small, there were stories of people saying, I'm sure it'll be fine. And I'm really guilty of saying, I'm sure it'll be fine. I mean, I think it's one of my mantras in, in all sorts of situations because usually it's fine. But, uh, but often what makes it fine is that we do things that help and 
So, uh, so yeah, the, uh, the, the sample of people, it wasn't everyone who was worried, and it wasn't everyone who was lacking hope, but we're seeing a definite trend, and, um, and, so, and that's significant. But question? Any in? Yes? All right, so with um, all of the risk assessment stuff, typically the uncontrollable risks, the things that people are just subject to, are considered by the typical person much more significant, you know, much more on their mind than those controllable ones. So they'll smoke, but they don't want to be exposed to, I don't know, nuclear power, let's say. You know, they don't want the nuclear power plant, but they'll smoke. So given climate change is kind of beyond one person's control and, and so on, you would think that it would be incredibly concerning to everybody. So would you care to comment on that, or do you have any thoughts about you know, that aspect of it? That's a really good point. And I, um, I guess I'd like to point out one thing about the, the smoking versus nuclear is that I've never seen anyone addicted to nuclear energy. <laughs> and I mean, you know, maybe we haven't really tried that out to see if it could happen. Um, and, and maybe we should. But, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's one difference there. Um, but certainly, I, I mean, the example I've heard is... Uh, and perhaps this is a bad example to use this week, but being scared to fly versus driving your car. And uh, when you're in the driver's seat, it seems safer. Um, and because you are, you feel in control, um, even if you're not in control of all the other people. Uh, yep? I'll just add something to that. Yeah. Um, about hope and control, personal control, I find I'm more hopeful, although aware of the downside, when I dramatically reduce my carbon footprint to below zero. Then I say there's hope because I know it can be done, because I've done it. And people have to do it to give broader hope. Thank you. And I love it when these Q&As turn into a conversation, but I know that leaves out the people in the back of the room. So please do wave your hands around if you have something to say. And um, But I... I I do want to address the idea that um, individuals, you know, this isn't an individual problem, because it is in a way. We are all individuals living with this problem. So we're all going to be experiencing more um, changes in weird weather events. We're going to be experiencing more natural-type disasters that are, you know, changing their character due to climate change. So there's, there's a need to, uh, to address this on an individual level in terms of keeping ourselves and our families and our offspring safe. But then there's also what you're putting into the environment. And uh, all of us, although greenhouse gases are invisible, we're putting greenhouse gases into the environment. And I have gone through the, um, the very... Uh, challenging process of trying to reduce my carbon footprint and reduce my greenhouse gases. And sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. And we need to not kick ourselves if we can't get down to zero. It's, it's okay. <laughs> we, we do need to um, elect people who will take action on these problems. And from what they say when we vote, uh, this is an individual action 
that leads up to a collective outcome. So I, I think that I would encourage you all to, when you consider who to vote for, um, consider whether the candidate will take action on climate change. And I, I guess I'm happy to say, and this wasn't true a few years ago, there are Republicans out there who see climate change as a problem. And so I'm not just telling you to vote for Democrats. And a few years ago, I would have been accused of that. But there are some very intelligent politicians out there who understand the problems. And, uh, and so please make your voice heard if you are conservative and you would like to get the attention of those legislators. Question from further back. Yes. I'll repeat your question after you. I love this question because it, it started with a flood um, and it ended with how much carbon is coming out of a tailpipe. But this is all very related. And so let me summarize uh, the tailpipe end of the question. The, um, the, the idea was uh, being kind of infuriated by people who are idling their cars. And how much is this affecting? And really it's affecting two things, uh, our air quality and whether people with asthma are affected or, or other sensitive individuals, as well as how much uh, greenhouse gas is coming out of that tailpipe. And, um, and I did the calculation, and I wish I had it in front of me right now, but for our climate exhibit, I'll do a little pitch for our climate exhibit up at NCAR, free, open almost every day of the year. Um, there's a graphic of, of how much CO2 comes out of a tailpipe depending on how much gas is burned. So it's going to depend on the car and, and the, you know, the amount of gas that it's burning, gasoline that it's burning. Um, and there are other factors too, of course, uh, like the, um, the amount of ethylene that's mixed in there that comes from plant sources. And, and so there's complexity to the answer, but that is a great way to go about it. Instead of scolding, which I know is some of our instincts when we see someone idling their car is to go, shame on you! Um, but that, of course, is not a very effective way to get anyone to change their behavior. In fact, they might rev their engine at you. So, um, but if you give them some data about what they're doing um, that's invisible, that can be really effective. And, and I think it's also kind of neutral um, if, if that data is not skewed in any way. So, uh, so there is in the exhibit, there's a graphic with a tailpipe and, <laughs> and an amount of CO2, but it's surprisingly, it's a surprisingly large volume of carbon dioxide. Um, and, and one reason it's a large volume, of course, is that gases are bigger, but I, I mean, it's like several yoga balls, basically. Um, uh, and I think that what we can't see is hurting us, um, and if we can find ways to visualize it and tell people about it, that's really effective. So thanks for bringing that up. Yes? I'd like to respond to that because I dealt with that a lot when I worked for the highway department. Everybody here, yeah. Here, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. I have enough sleep. Go ahead. Oh, I can talk really loud. Oh, wow, I'm really loud now. 
Um, I used to work for the highway department, and I convinced uh, CDOT to recycle and reuse millions of cubic tons of asphalt, topsoil, dirt, and concrete because of one thing. It saved them money. And the thing about the, the idling is it, ta- it costs more money to idle your car for more than 10 seconds than it does to turn it off and then turn it back on. And I've seen brochures before that were handed out in front of school, uh, school idling areas where people actually started turning off their cars. So when we can tell people that it's, it's not about the, the world and it's not about the future, it's about you and 10 cents and they'll do it. Thank you so much. And I think that brings up another great idea that we as individuals can do. Think about where you work. Think about what could happen at work that could make one small difference in the amount of waste produced, um, recycling that happens, uh, and, and uh, you know, amount of products used. And a lot of those decisions, a lot of those subtle changes can reduce the amount of expenses that a company uses or a company um, has. And so that then could be an idea pitched to the company that both reduces the amount of expenses they have and is better for the environment. And so if all of you can think of a, a little place a little place, like uh, instituting composting. How hard would that be? Uh, maybe it's hard where you are. Where, but, I mean, it, there are some subtle things that can happen. And so I encourage you all to, to look for those things. Uh, if not in your own world, I mean, because a lot of us have, if we care about this issue, we've reduced greenhouse gases to a point that, you know, uh, we can't reduce anymore. And that's, that's okay, but you can start branching out. What could my neighborhood do? What could my workplace do? Um, my neighbor who's never recycling, what could I do to help that? Uh, so what, what can you do to take those small steps? And yes, Global treaties are very important. The Paris Accord is very important. Um, U.S. uh, changes to infrastructure are are very important. But also, what what can we do in our communities and our neighborhoods? And that goes back to our kind of what can we control? Um, And we we can take some control over what we do locally. So that's a good way to start. Yes. Why not? I'm particularly bad at reciting the questions, so it's probably best. (laughs) Uh, Two things. One is um, when you're talking, the last slide you had, which I thought was, what am I doing? I'm too far away. You're too close. Oh, me. Now you're the presenter. Okay. (laughs) One of the things was the uh, one of the last slides you had, which was what do people think of nature? And I think one solution is to help, whether it's the neighbor or whatever, to appreciate you know, the bird in the tree or something like that. Because if you don't love it, you don't save it. Um, that, I guess that's, that would be my primary comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really important to understand that uh, hope is related to, to pleasure and love. And um, you, know, you want to do something. The other thing I was thinking is if you do recycle, 
if someone commits themselves to do that, it commits themselves to vote in the, in the way that would help the, the climate. That's a good, good point. And I think, like, what we value, I mean, you're not, we're not necessarily going to change someone else's values, but, um, but there's a lot of ways to help people connect with parts of their environment that they might, they might eventually value if they learn more about it. And there's been some research about um, children, like when to introduce them to the idea of environmental problems. Um, and in part because they're, not, they're just going to get scared, but they won't actually you know, develop an affectuation. Uh, um, that sounded like a disease. Um, they won't develop a, um, an affection for the, the natural world if they just learn about the problems in it. And so there, there's sort of a debate about at what age do you start introducing those problems. But I think, you know, beyond children, it, it goes to all sorts of folks that um, I once... Uh, is Vera still here? I don't think she's here. Anyway, I used to work up the street at the Colorado Mountain Club, and I once took a group of kids from um, sort of the center of Denver up to Jones Pass. We went snowshoeing. And these were kids that were in the alternative classroom. They were tough kids. They were huge kids. They, uh, they were talking in the van up there about which gang they were going to join. And they were in sixth through eighth grade. And then when we got there, they were terrified. They were, they were scared of the snow. They were scared of the snowshoes. They, they were just completely terrified. And I, I was a little ill-prepared for this situation. <laughs> and we, we wound up coming back a little early and talking about you know, what was so scary. But, um, but a lot of people have not been exposed to the natural world. And, and so finding ways to help, especially urban people, um, gain an affection for nature, even if it's just, you know, the the robin that's you know ha- hanging out on the sidewalk. It doesn't have to be up at Jones Pass, but like it, you know, what what can we do to help people gain an affection for for nature and understand that we're kind of all in it? Um, and yeah, and there's multiple answers to that question. Now I'm asking you guys questions. <laughs> I'm noticing the time. I'm wondering if we need to, um, if we can take one more or one more question. How about somebody way in the back who looks like a little ant person? Anyone have a question back there? No? Okay, we'll come closer in. <laughs> yes. Right. So the the question um, or the topic, the general topic for our last discussion, yeah, I 
I think I, I do. I mean, so the, the topic is denial. And, um, and because this is coming up in the context of climate change, I think we can kind of narrow down that denial to um, denial of, of what's going on with the climate. And, um, and I, I think there are several reasons for this. And one, I think I'll, I'll give you guys some hope before I start stating those reasons. Um, so hope on the hope side of the equation. Um, when, I, when I started working at NCAR um, in the education department, um, it, the amount of climate deniers was huge. It's much smaller now. Um, and there's a wonderful uh, study co that comes out every year that um, categorizes the American public into what they call six Americas. So these are, it's not just you accept climate change or you deny it, but there's kind of six sort of areas along a spectrum that um, you might flat out deny things, and I think that number is about 10% of the American public is what they estimate. On the other end of the spectrum are the people that are hyperventilating so much that they are kind of ineffective at doing anything because they're so scared. Um, so most of us are somewhere in the middle, but um, that denier group is getting smaller. So that's a little bit of hope for everybody. Um, and uh, But then I, you're right that it's, it's instinctive to deny uh, what's going on if it helps you keep yourself safe. And, uh, and so psychologists tell us that you know, that, that's a part of the human condition, is to deny what's going on until you can deny it no more. And we know, in this case, denial is fed by certain parts of, uh, of the American media and uh, companies that would like people to deny what's going on. But, uh, but it's true in every case. In our smoker example, I mean, you know, how bad could it be? We, we start making up arguments for it. And a big part of that, uh, speaking of rational people and rational thought, is the idea of rationalization. That, uh, and we tend to rationalize things. And it's been interesting over the last year giving talks about this book because even like after the book talks, and, and I'll be signing books, and people say, thank you so much. So I was thinking about my carbon footprint. And I don't think it's really that bad. I mean, it's not as bad as like the CEO of a company who's flying around everywhere. And I mean, they're like going through the psychological arguments for like how we kind of rationalize what we're doing. And, um, and that, you know, it's, it's very human. And so we, we need to be aware when we're doing it, but we are human. So, uh, you know, we also need to give ourselves a break. <laughs> so uh, a little more self-awareness, I think, would be great. But, uh, but also, you know, it, it, it's very natural to fall into those traps. And so the more we can help people understand, so why do you feel that way? And, you know, I understand you have strong emotions. Can you tell me about that? Seems like you're angry. You know, <laughs> part of being a climate science educator is now being a psychologist to the <laughs> people who are trying to deal with that information, it seems like. But um, I am not a psychologist. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, helping people work through their feelings is it's very important, no matter if you're telling someone that they have a disease that they need to deal with, or if you're telling someone that the earth has a disease that we need to deal with. So it's all related. All right. On that very happy note, thank you all. <laughs>